This Highlights episode of the Historian's Podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. Click the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com. This is Bob Cudmore. We have excerpts from six podcasts in this episode, the story of Marinus Willett in the Revolutionary War and beyond. Annette Berkowitz discusses the historical novel, The Corset Maker. We'll hear about early radio on WGY Schenectady, learn about the debate over America entering World War I. There's a new book on the sinking of the Titanic and a campaign to celebrate the birthday of the state of New York. Episode 412 of Historian's Podcast featured New York City correspondent Jim Kaplan discussing the life of Marinus Willett. Willett was born downstate and returned to New York City after the war to serve, that's the Revolutionary War, to serve in public office. How did Willett end up at Fort Stanwix in what is now Rome, New York, in the Revolutionary War? And uh, Jim Kaplan, what did he do there? Yeah, well, Willett is probably better known today for his relatively brief time at the Battle of Fort Stanwix, where the Marinus Willett Visitor Center greets you to the National Park Service facility, and his later defense of the Mohawk Valley during the Revolution. That, in certain respects, in my view, obscures the fact that he was a very important New York City politician and diplomat who played a critical role in the history of the nation and the city for almost 50 years after the Revolution. Probably his most historically important achievement, in my view, was his successful effort in 1790 to negotiate the Treaty of New York with 27 Muscogee Creeks. This treaty was one of the few treaties negotiated in New York when it was the capital in a brief period, but was really one of the early great diplomatic triumphs for the nascent American government. And in certain respects, I believe it has major implications for the city to this day. So I think really his greatest effort was the negotiation with, uh, on behalf of the Tammany Society with the, the Creek Nation, which settled the uh, controversies uh, in the southeast, uh, or Georgia and Alabama. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Can you tell us about Marinus Willett's early life and his role during the Revolution? Yeah, Willett was born in what today is the borough of Queens in 1740 to a somewhat prominent old-line family of landowners, which is sometimes described as having seen better days. He became a cabinet maker by trade, and as a young man growing up in New York City, he became a member of the Sons of Liberty, obviously opposed to the British uh, occupation, you might say. After hostilities broke out in Boston in 1785, an incident occurred on June 6, 1780, I'm sorry, 1775, an incident occurred on June 6, 1775, when a convoy of British soldiers led heavy arms to Boston to join the Battle of Bunker Hill. Uh, Willett came out of a local bar and jumped unarmed in front of the armed line of British soldiers, and he protested that only light arms, not heavy arms, were authorized by the city's ruling council, which was split between patriots and Tories, the mayor and uh, David Matthews was a strong supporter of the, the British. 
So other members of the Sons of Liberty soon gathered on Broad Street to stop the convoy and the British authorities, presumably fearing another Boston massacre, backed down and returned the heavy arms to the armory. As a result of what this would later be called the, quote, Broad Street incident, Willett became a local patriot hero, and in a way his career as a major figure began on that day. And he would serve in the Continental Army and later in the New York and federal governments for the next 50 years. And Marinus Willett played a role in the defense of Fort Stanwix in Rome, New York, in 1777. What happened there? As active hostilities broke out, having served with the militia in the French and Indian War, actually at the, when Fort Stanwix was being uh, uh, constructed, Willett uh, became an important officer in New York's militia. He was actually instrumental in the defense of Peekskill against uh, and preventing it from being burned. There's no monument to him in Peekskill, but he was quite important. He was later assigned to Fort Stanwix near Rome, New York, in 1777, as British troops under General John Burgoyne were driving down from Canada to split the colonies in two. Uh, Burgoyne's plan was to send troops under uh, General Barry St. Leger to take Fort Sandwich and to attack the Revolutionary War uh, forces uh, under General Gates later from the West. Uh, Now, St. Leger's superior force of British regulars and Native American allies besieged Fort Fanworks, and there were some 700 troops under the command of Peter Scanciford. If they had taken the fort, Gates would have been attacked from the west, and probably his victory at Saratoga wouldn't have taken place. What happened uh, with the siege was that uh, the British commanders uh, surrounded the fort, having many more troops than the 700 there, and told the men that unless that if they surrendered, they would uh, not, they wouldn't be harmed. But if they did not, they couldn't guarantee that the British, uh, that the Native Americans under the British command, wouldn't kill and scalp all the uh, Patriot women and children as well as the the rest of the community. But Benedict Arnold was heading with a relief column to Fort Stanwix and many of the attackers deserted the siege, and the fort was not captured. March 18, 2022, uh, was the time to debut episode 414 of The Historians with Annette Liebeskin-Berkowitz talking about her novel, The Corset Maker, the story of a courageous Jewish teen, Rivka, who was living in Warsaw, Poland in the late 1920s and early 30s. Rivka is loosely based on Annette's mother, Dora. Yes, Rivka Berg, my protagonist, is actually modeled after my mother, who was the real flesh and blood uh, corset maker. And many of Rivka's experiences uh, are uh, based on my mother's. But my mother also had three amazing uh, friends, women, who were her friends in Warsaw. Some of the events in my novel are based on their experiences. Uh, these, uh, all these women were women of incredible courage, women who, he would, he would call them feminists, uh, though the word wasn't much in use at that time, but they survived some amazing hardships 
And I, I fuse them into a sort of composite characters in my novel. The novel, in essence, is about friendship between two young women and what happens to it when anti-Semitism, wars, and men interfere in the relationship. Mm. So it is about how major world events impact individual relationships. But that's just the tip of an iceberg. Well, let me start with something simple. Tell us about corsets. I I think I know what a corset is, but it's a garment worn by women, but not so much anymore. Well, actually, corsets are making uh, a resurgence. The history of corsets is really fascinating. Corsets uh, were worn uh, all the way back into the 14th century. They continued to be used very actively into the 18th and 19th. And when I did my research on corsets, I found to my shock and horror that little girls as young as five and six were made to wear corsets even to sleep uh, so that their waists could become very tiny because uh, a tiny waist signified uh, female beauty. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, that, that, that has changed, but, but the corset is making a resurgence. Some flashy personalities even wear corsets on the outside. Beautiful corsets. I'm right now speaking with a marvelous uh, sculptor who does glass corsets. So, yeah, it's it's amazing how uh, corsets are really are having a day. There is an opera in Lincoln Center in New York called Intimate Apparel, and it's about corsets. So corsets are having a day. My my book is very timely. But my (laughs) book really, you know, my, my book is... Not about corset making per se. My book is about fascism. Yes, indeed. Uh, and the fact that your main character, and you said your mother herself was a corset maker, it speaks to me that this was an occupation that women adopted. I mean, women did this, or w- was it unusual to have a woman corset maker? No, it was, uh, to my knowledge, it, it was not unusual, although when my mother practice this craft and art, really, for her it was more of an art, in post-war Poland, she may have been, as far as I know, the only corset maker in the city of Łódź, which is the second largest city in Poland. So uh, she had a a huge number of clients, most of whom were actresses from uh, a major theater in the city that was uh, close to her shop. And uh, she, she practiced the, this corsetry uh, and brassiere making under great duress because in communist Poland, private businesses were not welcome. They were really discouraged and, and owners were harassed by the tax authorities. So it was hard, but my mother, but my mother continued. She loved it because she loved the design aspect of it. And I think some of it really rubbed off on my brother, maybe genetically. He's, he's an incredible designer, uh, and so was she. That's Annette Liebeskin berkowitz discussing her novel, The Corset Maker. Hi, I'm Anne-Marie Barker-Schwartz, and I'm the director and violinist of Musicians of Malwick. And today we're going to be discussing the 100th anniversary of WGY and its music, a violinist named Edward Rice, 
and his connection locally and his programming on WGY, which was so important during those first decades of broadcasting when the station was really at the cutting edge of technology and the caliber of the music being played locally was of such high quality with not only Mr. Rice and his professional string quartet that performed from the very first broadcast uh, for more than two, two decades afterwards, but also uh, describing some of the other concert music with the GE Concert Orchestra that was broadcasting right from the corner of State and Erie Boulevard in downtown Schenectady from a beautiful theater. And we'll be describing the repertory and talking about how it interfaced with some of the other programming on WGY. On March 25th of 2022, we debuted episode 415 of Historian's Podcast with Anne-Marie Barker-Schwartz, who's a violinist, exploring the history of high-quality music in the early days of radio. When WGY in Schenectady first signed on February 20th of 1922, Edward Rice uh, played the violin uh, during the initial uh, broadcast with a, a really uh, complex and well-known classical piece. What was your reaction to hearing that? I was actually quite impressed with his quality as a player. He was obviously a first-rate violinist, and I was also surprised at the selection that he used to open the broadcast. You know, as I was researching what was played on that first broadcast and in the first decade, uh, all it said was Romance by Wieniawski. And I thought, that could be anything. And I was having a very hard time trying to figure out where to go with that, trying to track down the actual piece. And then I listened to this interview and, uh, I knew immediately it was the second movement of the second violin concerto, and I thought that was a surprising selection because it, it normally would be played with violin and orchestra, but yet the beauty of the piece was the perfect choice to open, open that first broadcast and would make it very memorable for its listeners. Was it just his violin, or did he have help? I mean, were there other, uh, other instruments playing? He had help. So for that first broadcast, I'm assuming, though we don't have an archival recording of the very first broadcast, but I would assume that he played with piano. Based on the archives I examined, and there are fabulous archives at my science Schenectady, there are pictures always of a, pian- a pianist, and they had a lovely full-size you know, grand piano in the recording studio. And he often had string quartet, too. He had formed his own professional string quartet. And so they played very, very frequently on on the station during the first couple of decades. And they were also playing real music. And what I mean by real music is that they weren't playing, like, Irish songs um, or simple things. They were playing Beethoven string quartet movements and Schubert string quartet movements, which is a testament actually to what the station believed was the desire of the listening audience and and sort of it's a it's a great snapshot into American life at the time and and sort of the 
sophistication and culture of the listeners. Violinist Anne-Marie Barker-Schwartz is the founder of Musicians of Malwick, and that musical group took part in WGY's 100th anniversary broadcast. Moving into April, episode 416 dealt with America and World War I, a story with parallels with the news today. Hi, my name is Neil Langto. I'm an American historian. I've recently written a book called The Approaching Storm, which is about the path to one of the greatest decisions in American history, the path for the United States to join the Allies in World War One. The story is told through three leading progressives of the time, President Woodrow Wilson, former President Theodore Roosevelt, and the great social reformer Jane Addams. Author Neil Langto says Russia's invasion of Ukraine is similar to events at the start of World War I. What I particularly see the parallel is when the war begins, the Germans invade Belgium, which is absolutely, you know, it was a bloody, very violent uh, takeover. They go through Belgium, and that really worked up American public opinion quite a bit. And then these decisions that were being faced with today were, were coming up in 1914. It's like, well, what do we do? What is our responsibility as a nation when another country is violated by, by an invading power? So I think we are seeing that today, and I think it was a decision that President Wilson had to deal with in 1914. Uh, Roosevelt uh, came to believe that Wilson had made a great mistake with the invasion of Belgium, that he should have protested it and should have done more, whereas Wilson did not do anything. Wilson felt it really was not our call, and we were not bound to do anything. Of course, there was no League of Nations or United Nations or NATO in those days. I do see a great deal of similarities, and I think it's funny, these, these same decisions, you know, are, are always facing the United States, you know, of what do we do, what is our place in the world, and how do we respond to, to aggression of this kind. Hi, this is Brian Jackson, and I'm the author of a forthcoming book called Why the Titanic Was Doomed. Uh, the Titanic, the most magnificent ocean liner of her time, was doomed and really destined for disaster even before she left the docks at Southampton. Uh, she was doomed by her owner, doomed by her designers, doomed by the men who sailed in her, and doomed even by her sister ship. The interview with Brian Jackson, episode 417 of Historian's Podcast. Brian, how was the Titanic doomed by her sister ship, the Olympic? Yes, the Olympic was actually built first. The Olympic went into service in 1911, and the idea was that uh, what happened was Cunard, which was the rival to the White Star Line, Cunard had come out with two new ships, the, Laura, uh, the Lusitania and the Mauritania, and they were starting to cut into White Star's business pretty substantially. So the head of the White Star Line was J. Bruce Ismay, and he had dinner, uh, I believe, in 1907 with Lord Perry, who was the chairman of Harlan & Wolf, which was a shipbuilder in Belfast. And this is the company that White Star had always gone to to have its ships built. And they came up with a plan to develop three massive liners that would be the largest ever built. And uh, these three service uh, ships would go into service on the, on the transatlantic from England to the U.S. And uh, the idea was that uh, this would really give them an edge and a leg up on the canard liners. So Olympic uh, went into service in 1911. Too much fanfare and attention. And what happened uh, on its fifth, fifth voyage, uh, leaving Southampton, uh, it was going down the river and 
the ship turned in front of a British war cruiser called the Hawk, and the Hawk had a reinforced bow, which was designed to ram ships or submarines in wartime. As the Olympic turned, the captain of the Hawk didn't quite expect this uh, huge liner to turn in front of him. Hmm. And and the men that ran the uh, Olympic and these large ships really didn't understand the physical forces involved. I mean, this was uh, 882 feet long, the largest ship ever built, largest man-made moving object. And so the suction of the wake as the Olympic passed by literally drew the Hawk into the side of the Olympic and damaged the, the starboard side, uh, not only punched a hole in it, but also bent the starboard propeller shaft. Mm. So Olympic had to be uh, uh, have that cancel voyage. They patched her up and limped her back to Belfast where she could be repaired. And of course, they wanted to get the Olympic back into service as quickly as possible because you're not making any money when the ship is laid up. So they diverted both men and materials from Olympic, uh, from Titanic rather, which was still being built, to the Olympic. And this included the starboard propeller shaft. They took the starboard propeller, propeller shaft out of the ti- uh, Olympic or out of the Titanic and put it into the Olympic. This resulted in the Titanic's maiden voyage sailing date being postponed about a month. Titanic originally was supposed to sail on its maiden voyage in March of 1912. And it was pushed back to April 10th of 1912. And the reason Olympic wound up playing a major role in Titanic sinking is that if you looked at the North Atlantic in March of 1912, the shipping lanes were pretty much free of ice and icebergs. By the time April arrived, the Labrador current had pulled all of this ice down out of the North Atlantic into the shipping lanes and directly into Titanic's path. Historian Bruce Deerstein is encouraging New Yorkers to celebrate the birthday of the Empire State. Uh, Bruce has written books and articles on New York State history. What is the date for the birthday, Bruce? Well, it's April 20th. That was the date in 1777 when the... Uh, ad hoc uh, uh, Patriot Convention, which had assembled back in um, 1776, finished the work on the first state constitution at uh, Kingston. One of the reasons this is such an important holiday is that if you had looked at New York just a few months earlier, you would have said, we're not going to make it. (laughs) (laughs) The, The British hold New York City, they're closing in from Canada, uh, they're going to invade us, and we're just the uh, the, the new uh, colony in the process of becoming a state. It's not going to make it, but but we did. It was a kind of a rushed, improbable affair. The convention uh, elected in 1776 fled from New York City to White Plains to Fishkill, and then to Kingston uh, to keep ahead of the British, and voted to have New York endorse the Declaration of Independence. We joined the independence movement. Uh, but there was no model for creating a state or a state uh, constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think about it, there was no such thing as a state. There were colonies and provinces, and there were nations or nation states, such as Great Britain, uh, but there were no states. 
and other states or states in the process of becoming uh, coming into existence were still writing their constitutions. The Articles of Confederation, uh, which wouldn't have been much of a model anyway, uh, but still hadn't been written, that appeared in the fall of 1777. And of course, the U.S. Constitution was 10 years in, in advance. So, uh, it was a rushed, improbable affair in the sense that the convention, the group doing the work, was kind of on the run. Uh, they didn't have much to draw on. Uh, they did have the uh, so-called British Constitution, which is actually an unwritten uh, a series of precedents and documents and so on, mm -hmm. and the Magna Carta, and they were very uh, well educated. They had, uh, they knew a lot about uh, European philosophers, the natural right philosophy, and they had their own colonial experience to, to draw on. All of that together is, is not very, not very much. And yet they brought a document together which, uh, by the way, uh, is still in existence and exists in the New York State Archives in, in Albany. And if you look at it, if you see it, which happens once in a while, because one, once in a while the, the archives gets it out for exhibit, it's a, it's a handwritten document, of course, and there are crossouts and interlinear uh, substitution of words uh, right on the document itself. They had to work so fast. Uh, then in the end, they didn't have time to get a clean copy. There's a perfectly clean copy uh, before sending it off to the printer uh, for printing. The, the document itself is is there. It's it's an interesting thing to see. Uh, it's not only uh, because it's still in existence, but because of the of the crossouts and the the quick uh, quick editing. It's really early on, and isn't it? I mean, uh, if they uh, adopted this April twentieth, seventeen seventy seven. That's that's before the Battle of Saratoga, which was a, you know a key event in uh, the like safety in uh, New York State. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely right. Yes, yes, that's uh, that's true. They they adopted on April twentieth. Uh, they took a day off on April 21st, but on April 22nd, the uh, secretary of the of the convention uh, got up on a barrel outside of the uh, courthouse where they'd done the work, and and read it aloud to the citizens of of, of uh, Kingston, uh, thereby kind of proclaiming the state f uh, for all the world to hear, in a sense, in, into existence. But uh, you, you're you're ab you're absolutely right. New York State had a what I, what I call a miracle year in 1777. We joined the cause for, for independence. Uh, we endorsed the Declaration of Independence. And, and by the way, the New York State Constitution that we're talking about, the 1777 document, has the Declaration of Independence as a prelude, mm -hmm. as a kind of a, a justification for um, uh, for what we were doing, but even more miraculously, at least I think, they managed to hold elections, uh, elect a legislature, elect a governor, who happened to be George Clinton, uh, uh, the state's longest tenured governor 
uh, by the way, though not widely remembered today and sometimes confused with DeWitt Clinton. Right. And they were delayed in getting started because Clinton was fighting the British. And he had to wait till there was a lull in the fighting. He came into Kingston, uh, gave his uh, inaugural address. Uh, the legislature got to work. And then came, uh, kind of quickly, uh, the uh, enemy coming down, is just as you say, from Canada and being stopped at Saratoga, which turns out to be a, a turning point not only for New York, but for the revolution. Happy birthday, New York State. You've been listening to the Highlights Edition of the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.